you didn't know you needed today we are here to talk about two films 1978 straight time starring dustin hoffman and 2000's animal factory starring william defoe while these two films have a great deal in common their main connection is that they were both adapted from books written by edward bunker now many of you might know edward bunker as he played mr blue in quentin tarantino's 1992 film reservoir dogs but this episode aims to acquaint or reacquaint you with his writing, specifically those books of his which have been adapted to captivating films to explore Bunker's work properly and thoroughly. I have with me a member of the Welcome to the Party Pal team, film historian, Christian Needham. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. Glad not to be in prison or on parole, that's for sure. (laughs) Right? I have to tell you, prison films and shows really uh, shake me to the core. It's, there is a hell um, and I, it, it, it exists in those walls and exists on earth. It really, really gets me. Um, and this is, uh, you know, Edward Bunker, he's an authority. This is, he is someone who knows about this world. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about him. We should talk, before we dig into both these films, which are fascinating, we should talk about him and um, kind of his background and how he's able to capture this world so well. Yeah, I mean, Edward Bunker, just working backwards, as you know, a lot of people's entree to him was as Mr. Blue in, in Reservoir Dogs. And um, what that really gives gives insight to is is the kind of a happy ending to, to a life that very yeah, easily true. could have been anything but the idea that he crafted a career for himself toward the end of his life, the last two decades, decades of his life as an actor, as a screenwriter, as a, as a mm-hmm. film consultant on anything to do with when, when somebody needed uh, authentic, you know, when directors or screenwriters needed authenticity for their prison set films, he became a go-to guy on that. And so um, you'd see his name pop up in, in credits and far, far more where he goes uncredited, but his, his mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. impact is felt. 
And this starts with a, a guy that you know was born in the early 30s and spent most of his first decade and a half of life as a juvenile delinquent. And uh, it's interesting the time that he that that he grew up in. Um, he's a teenager just after World War II, um, at the beginning of what should be um, the the great post-war Americana era. But because of a very turbulent home life and kind of left to his his own devices, um, Bunker is kind of the dark uh, experiences the dark unseen side of that. Uh, yeah, totally. Basically, in in prison, state prisons, um, but before that, juvenile halls. Um, famously, he was at one time the youngest prisoner ever to be in San Quentin when he was 17 years old, around 1950. Um, and you know he was he was not a very large or imposing guy. He was uh, kind of on on the the shorter um, the shorter side, but extremely intelligent. Um, had an IQ in the one fifties. Um, yeah, one fifty two is the number. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. his choice to how he to how he passed his time in in prison was really uh, about reading and books and learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, for yeah. those who want to learn more about him, um, I, I highly recommend he's there's a couple autobiographies or just just go mm-hmm. to, to a Wikipedia page and and read read his um, his background. It's it's really kind of um, amazing. Uh, some of the the details of that, but one important one was that in his later teen years, uh, the wife of a Hollywood director named Hal B. Wallace took an interest in him randomly, um, and became kind of his intellectual sponsor, and got. Oh, the wife's name? What was what was her name? She was a silent screen star. Yeah, I have to. There was, I think it's Louise um, uh, Fazenda. Yeah, if I'm right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's yes, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so yep. she, through her, uh, amazingly, he met like Aldous Huxley, Tennessee Williams, mm-hmm. uh, William Randolph Hearst. I mean, it's it's pretty, like, I I would love to like read now his actual biography to get more <laughs> details yeah, of how. She, this... I mean, she pushed him besides those connections, which is super crucial, and 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 becoming of what he became uh she 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 encouraged him in writing I, I, she sent him um a, a typewriter in prison and just was just really you know because she worked it wasn't even prison at that point um she was a benefactor at one of the house for boys he was at and she really encouraged him and kind of sent him in that direction i'm glad you brought that up because that's pivotal as much as like you know, he was shaped by being, you know, convicted at 14, leading to kind of this cycle of incarceration, parole, and reoffending, and, and jail time, and all that, until he finally got out in 1975 for good. He was in a system, of course, that shaped it, but, I mean, he had to be able to tell these stories, and it was because of this, um, you know, influence in his life and this passion for writing that he was able to piece that all together. Absolutely, and then the other the other piece of that puzzle was the in, uh, well, the example set by uh, a guy named Carol Chessman, who uh, published the book um, while in prison, and kind of was uh, served kind of as an example for for Bunker that this kind of thing was possible. This is in the mid fifties, and that book had. Uh, which was called Cell uh, 2455, Death Row, mm-hmm. um, went on to be adapted into a film. Uh, so, again, another example to, to go by. Yeah. Um, fast forward, you know, bunkers in and, in and out of, of prisons over the next two decades. Um, to the And uh, 
by the early 70s, uh, all the this literary inspirations and examples uh, gets to the point where he publishes, while still serving time, uh, his first uh, book called No Beast So Fierce. Um, he That was 73. I believe he was out by 75. Um, anyway, Hoffman, uh, Dustin Hoffman purchased the rights to the book. This later becomes uh, the the baseline uh, for um, Straight, uh, time. Straight Time uh, yeah. in 1978. You let, us, you let us right into our first film. I mean, that is uh, the uh, film, 1978 film, um, where Dustin Hoffman and Gary Busey star. Uh, it's it's dramatic and riveting story of an ex-con uh, <laughs> No surprise there for what we're talking about. Uh, battling for a new life and love and um, in the tension of the big city. And uh, yeah, that is, this is, I mean, before we even get into like the content of the film, this is something Dustin was really, it, this was his baby, so to speak. So from what I understand, he visited Edward in prison to talk to him about bringing it to life. And then he put it out through his own production company. Which I think was called Sweetwater or something yeah. of that nature. And it, this so much so that he yeah it was Sweetwater Sweet Sweet Wall I believe yeah yeah go on and he again exactly he took on pr- producing it uh, writing it initially mm-hmm. was going to direct it but it, it it was that was such a man monumental task he had to focus on the role yeah, yeah he he basically he ended up hiring another director uh, Ulu Grossbard who ended up being. Um, which is his friend and someone he's worked with for a long time. I mean, yeah. they met when he was a. Uh, they were both working on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, and that that was an, an important relationship, especially what seemed like was a relatively low-ish budget film, but but uh, one that that's you know was was very intense. It seems in in the making of, and certainly intense in in the editing of that, which again kind mm-hmm. of destroyed their relationship later on. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and which is again the the editing situation on this film, who got final edit, um, became a very divisive topic. It's, it's one of the reasons the film's probably not well more well known because Hoffman yeah. didn't end up doing any press for it. Ironically, he he, uh, he ended up suing Warner Brothers over the treatment of the film uh, because he was denied final cut. Which is, and you're right, it did lead to him, you know, him not kind of owning it, and which is a shame because I mean. You know, maybe he had a different vision for it, but what became, uh, you know, when this when I watch it, I I, I honestly believe it to be um, one of the best films of the seventies. This is a classic to me, and it's something one of one of his best performances. And um, you know, it, there was obviously <laughs> he had other things in mind, but wow, it, what what became of it was really special. Yeah, if you watch this and the Graduate back to back, you see a, a real range that the whole spectrum of, of acting that this guy can can mm. pull off um absolutely one of the interesting things too about it is the physicality of of, of the way he inhabits the role of mm. uh, um of max it's basically you know a, a, i can you can see the influence of it's of hanging out with bunker and not just the the way you carry yourself but but the the way you talk the way the way he talks and interacts with with um fellow convicts, ex-cons, mm-hmm. other stuff like like that. There's this um, like real um, swagger to it that, that comes, yeah. uh, that that's really interesting, that comes with the role. And um, mm-hmm. interestingly, uh, I guess a, a few years back, I interviewed the 
the foundational, I guess you call it, screenwriter of, of Blade Runner, Hampton Fancher. Mm. And he, oh yeah, yeah. And Hampton was was saying, and he's he's said this on in documentaries before as well, that his first um, choice to play Deckard was was Hoffman. And uh, wow. and it's interesting because you could hear that and think like, well, Dustin Hoffman, you know, what was he doing around that time? And the first thing that might come out come to come to mind is Kramer versus Kramer. But then you see mm-hmm. him uh, um, in a film like this, and it's like, yeah. Definitely. I could, I could, after watching this film, I could definitely see him as, as Deckard and going you, against you know, Replicants. You know, i so totally. I, 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 absolutely. I've seen that before. That, that I believe maybe even in your article, uh, first and foremost, that that he was considered for that. And my mind went to straight to roles like The Graduate and some, and some of the ones that followed that were, you know, a little bit more lighthearted. And after seeing this, I, you, you completely understand how that could have worked. Yeah, he got very rare. Relatively rarely, let me say that did Hoffman do anything that was like where he got to show off his physicality? Um, yeah, uh, Marathon Man that is edge, a big that one. fierceness. It's really fierce. Like there's a look in his eyes and like a a calm. And you were alluding to it already, like confidence. That I mean, there's one scene I just where he walks in um, to a to a jewelry store that he's about to rob, and he's just slowly putting on his goggles and and his gloves because he's gonna be about to smash, smash some wind um, glass to get the things, and the the like it was daunting to me how you know it was it seemed so nonchalant but it was also so scary he had this I think yeah you've been saying it physicality or just like this presence to him that was even with his frame being what it is it was pretty 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 intimidating. Yeah, he's. I think the a good word for it is wiry, and you know, there's mm. doesn't seem to be much much body fat on him. You know, he's a guy that comes out mm-hmm. of of prison pretty pretty lean and mean, so to speak. And the first thing he does when he's walking down the street in the this wonderful kind of opening montage is he gets a he gets a hot dog because uh, he just wants to walk around the city and he gets a hot dog and he almost forgets to pay for it because he's not you know. He's he's not at uh, he's not at the the counter anymore in in. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in prison so yep. but it's interesting like that's you don't you don't see him stuff in his face or 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 um going to excesses he's a very controlled character mm-hmm. um even oh, to yeah. the point where he does you don't he's he's careful he doesn't do drugs um he almost get, he's mm-hmm. he unfortunately is for for his freedom associates with a guy who's who's an addict and we'll talk about him in you a see. second <laughs> um, we're gonna talk about Busey in a second because this is good. this is I good. Hear what you have to th- have to say, uh, yeah. but yeah, he's he, just the way you get. You very quickly get get the um, idea of him that he's you know like a a, a lean, controlled, calculating uh, guy. Um, but there's a reason that he's that he's in prison, which is that. He has the balls to pull off these jobs, but he is um, self-defeating in his mentality. Where altern- he alternates, it's he either is too patient, takes too much time, madding like like infuriatingly um, on these um, heists where he'll as the alarm's ticking away, they'll he'll work with a clock, but then ignore the clock and and because yeah, yeah. of his, his own assurance, and then he'll also have. A lack of patience with those around him who aren't as controlled in their their kind of personal choices um, yep. as he is, and oh, so that's that's a good point. It's a unique dichotomy. Yeah, there. so the, it's it doesn't all that adds up to the fact that it doesn't paint him as as he's this is got not a guy who's a great thief because he's been mm. caught, no way. but he has yeah. the ingredients to be. 
but it's it's these subtleties that 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 foil him, um, and that that's the reason for him going back where where um, where he's coming out of at the beginning of the beginning of the film. The, the, There's a reason he's the a, he's a things, convict. The little things will get you caught. And each of the guys that he associates with has their foibles, has their their things, the reason mm-hmm. for it. Um, mm. The two the two main guys that he associates that uh, that go uh, first of all his uh, the guy he he. Uh, carries out a couple of heists with his uh, his friend Jerry, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, um, who's a love Harry. great great love. in this film. Reminded me a lot of if you've you've um, ever seen Repo Man, um, he has a very mm-hmm. very kind of oh, similar good. vibe to that. This this kind yeah. of down and dirty professional, and what he does. Um, you know the idea of walking to, whether it's walking into a bank or a jewelry store or almost mm-hmm. robbing a card game and stuff. You know. The word that keeps coming out of him is, you know, this is, you know, he's a professional. This is, you know, you yeah. got this is uh, like if you're gonna work with me, you gotta tell me all the information. I'm gonna do, like he's, yeah. he, like, but he lives, it, he lives for the energy of it. Like he can't. Well, one, I, I just to like jump in real quick about Jerry before we move on to Willie, who is Gary Busey. I, one of the things that I found so fascinating, and you nailed it, absolute professional, needs all the information. He's, you know, you gotta make sure he's eyes are dotted and his T's across. But, um, you know, when they find really reconnect and they decide to work together again, they're in the backyard by a pool, having some food with, you know, Jerry, Harry Dean Stanton's character with his wife. And he wants the wife walks away and it looks like he's kind of living a good life. He, he's just like, you got to take me, you know, with you. Like, do you have any work? Do you have any jobs? And he's like, he's like, I do. What do you want to do? And he's like, anything. And it kind of just made me think about the pull of that underworld or like the thrill or, you know, he wanted back in regardless of what the job was. And, you know, kind of like the suburban life was killing him. That was where he got his kicks and his kicks ended up getting him at the end. But, you know, that was very interesting to me. Well, it's and that's the thing, you know, Max Dembo is the proverbial bad influence. He's the guy that, that shows up and and whatever your your plan is with these guys, with these his friends. He's the one that that pulls them back, even as Max himself is supposedly trying to go straight and uh, you know hold a hold a boring job, um, not get hassled. We saw that, yeah. We saw that bad influence uh, idea um, come up in in a major way when he was visiting um, Willie Gary Busey's character, um, where his wife, uh, some I think her name was, but who played by Kathy Bates, really wonderful. Yeah to see her it's one of her first roles and 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 as far as i know but um she 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 sends him out of the house she tells max he's got to go like it's he that 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 idea of a bad influence was was going through multiple people that he was dealing with and she was like you can't be around him you know well i mean the the female support systems here is is a real big is a real important theme of the film which is Mm -hmm. the the wives and girlfriends of of these guys that that are um, ex-convicts, career criminals, you know, or trying to stay away from that, you know, like it, it's interesting. Do you see the the different types of women that that um, are uh, hook up with these guys? Um, mm-hmm. uh, in Selma's case, she wants you know she wants Willie to to be a stay-at-home father, wants to be uh, a a real um, you know, stabilizing force. They have a they have a son together that's played by yep. Busey's real life son. I believe it's his, his first role. He's like, oh, was yeah, it? Yeah, I think Jake I Busey. Yeah, I think cool. he's like seven. I think it's his first. That's Jake. Yeah, Jake Busey. 
<laughs> yeah, and they, they they that's a great film uh, or a great um, scene where they they're all having dinner together, yep. and and you see at, at a certain point Jake and uh, Jake and Gary kind of uh, kind of roughhousing with each other, and Jake goes a little bit too far and punches Gary. And I don't know whether that was scripted or not, but Gary was not happy about it and like had a very, you know, like. But the apologetic nature of him afterwards was really telling to who he was. He was he really wanted to make it up to his son. He was a good guy and he was, you know, troubled by drugs and drugs is like the drug scene or just the 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 seedy underworld scene is what he could find in with Max, as you can see when he goes to his place to shoot up. Later, yeah. And I, and I think the fact that it's heroin is 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 important because this comes up again yeah. in animal factory the idea of of what's a drug for passing time and not you know blocking the rest of the world out Definitely. and that's uh, that's a pretty devastating one and it's also little details too on on the art of shooting up so to speak mm-hmm. the idea that you know mm-hmm. when willie goes to that visit max's uh, kind of um, boarding house room um, kind of un, un, unannounced, he just or he is, you know they he invites him up, but then out of nowhere, kind of pulls out his gear to get to shoot up, including matches that he turns over in a specific way to heat up a spoon and stuff. And uh, and uh, what does he say? Something. Like, well, that get that gets him. That's well, yeah, exactly. Off, so. I mean, the the idea that what did he say though? He's like, I got a little excited. Yeah, yeah. It's like the it's that was, the idea like that that parole officer uh in that is um who's playing that pro officer i just see him in so many films he's really oh really yeah mm at walsh yeah yeah he's really he's re- he's he's just such a steady character this was actor, but this he, was uh, during like a really that, interesting time for him too like you know his his why? most kind of infamous role was um blood simple for the for the cohen oh, brothers yeah. but he's oh, yep. he's malevolent in another way in this in this film which uh-huh. is just how um the banality of him in this yep. of the idea that he represents the man he's you know mm-hmm. he's a probation officer who's obviously vastly in one sense probably vastly overworked he's probably got a lot of ex-cons that he's got yeah. to oversee but he's also kind yep. of arrogant about how he pulls it off and and very Definitely. you know random about how his enforcement and so he drops in randomly on max at his in his room a crushing and finds you know yeah. when max is getting ready to go on a date and uh Interrupts interrupts all those plans by finding these matches that that Willie's left, and I I like the idea that there's a scene and a and a plot point that turns on something as small a detail as small as that that implicates these guys and what the kind of you know uncertainty that they live in even out when they're yep. outside of of prison, and so that that uh, ends up leading eventually once uh, you know. First of all, that that that's when we actually get a chance to see a little bit of Max back in prison. What that what that life is like. The idea that all Definitely. of a sudden, after being out, he's back in again, and he's got no privacy, and he's getting strip searched, and he's in a cell with like five other guys, and he's competing for bunks, and um, it it's yeah. clear he he's been there before. Yeah, though, he he carries know? it off, and this yeah, is like really he carries it off. This is something that this is a, a big point for me that 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 um that i found just so fascinating that is we in i think it actually frames the movie in a unique way for me it's so interesting that we get so little backstory of max 
we basically just end up in a situation where he is who he is and we don't find out exactly why. Of course, we know he went to prison. But there's a lot of things that people go through in life that lead you to prison or you just lead you to be the way you are. But we are just basically presented as him as him. And we are to fill in the gaps. But what is really like compelling when, when you learn more about what happened there is in the book, that's not the case that happened. I mean, we, we I think the book actually starts with Max in prison, where he was kind of a boss. I think he had a boyfriend, or not, not a boyfriend's probably not the term. I'm, I'm not sure, but a, and, a, a and punk, he was so just, to speak, <laughs> a punk exactly. And then he, uh, and then and he was running shop. So like in the book, you get to see him running shop and then go to a zero. You know when he gets out. Um, but the fact that that this movie didn't set it up that way, we just see him. Um, you know, just kind of maintaining and trying to figure it out. And we never see that he was this kind of, you know, really badass, you know? And I just thought it was an interesting way to frame it. I think I like, I like that I wasn't sure who he was. And I, I liked when, you know, he, his capabilities were coming to light in different ways and that you were realizing, man, this guy, you know, it, it was something. He's, he, he probably, you infer that he probably was a badass in prison or a badass before. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, I'm glad you said that because again, like on the inside, he's, he's a king, but on the outside, mm-hmm. his reach exceeds his grasp. Um, and we see that too, well even when he comes back and tries to pull off his first heist, he's in a liquor st- or a, a bodega of some kind. And his, uh, his gun literally falls apart while he's trying to hold mm-hmm. the guy up and yep. he makes off with, with the cash, but it's, you know, could have easily fallen apart. And this, Again, sometimes he needs to be saved from himself. Um, you know, when they, they he uh, he and Jerry come very close to ripping off a card game and and mm-hmm. so frustrated by a late arriving third uh, kind of third wheel who's going to supply them with a shotgun to take, you know, to cover the game that he um, he insists on trying to on trying to hold it up anyway, um, even though the last time he tried, uh, you know, ripping something off with with just a gun it you know the gun literally fell apart so jerry the professional has to like talk him out of this and then calm him down when he tries to beat up the guy who didn't bring him the gun and all all this stuff so yeah like you said these clues on on mentality and and of of what happened before you know yeah a lot of that's left a mystery in fact i'd, I'd say the the most we are given in a, in a real kind of explicit sense is the final shot of the film where you go back through his mugshots to a guy to yep. a teenage Denbo, yep. and it's a teenage, you know, um, what is it like? Three phases of imprisonment that were looked at. I think we get three mugshots, yeah. right? Yeah, and you yeah. see how long yeah. it's been that he's been in, in this system, and how warped mm-hmm. he probably is by it um, in yeah. his his manifestations, and it goes, um, you know, go goes to that that uh, what what will be kind of inferred by the the title of the next book animal factory there is something animalistic about it you know that you're stripped down to, oh, no to primal primal motivations um, oh yeah oh yeah that, that, that just I think it's the perfect name for a prison movie book uh, whatever I mean it is it's it is it becomes so uh, primal in there it's just it is it is a farm it's 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 truly sick. It's something I think about and read about often. Just the the atrocities of of specifically it, the American prison system. But I mean, 
it's it's wild to think about and just when i remember when i first kind of came upon the movie um animal factory i was just drawn to it in that idea just like this is you know it, it the, the i i knew that i was gonna speak to the sickness of the inside or the workings of this animal factory inside and they really take you into it in this film it was uh one directed by um steve buscemi who we all know um and uh, it's it's uh, it stars William Defoe and just a real tour de force. It's about a, a suburban night, uh, a youngster. Uh, his name is Ron, uh, played by Edward Furling, uh, kind of a spoiled young um, kid and not overly worried about the marijuana charge that's leveled against him. But after um, you know he goes through the system, he's actually put in jail for five years in a prison, and um, he's physically frail, kind of a. Uh, you know, not used to these rough surroundings, and 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 he is, um, you know, he's taken care of, so to speak, by uh, Earl, who is played by William Defoe, who is a veteran inmate, um, you know, who who looks out for him. So there's a real fascinating dynamic between those two, and and I kept I kept thinking about the fact that I almost felt that we were looking at two sides of a coin of Edward's uh, Edward Bunker's experiences in jail kind of as the greenhorn the 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 new kid on the block and we're seeing that through edward furlong's character and then just the seasoned um inmate in uh william defoe and it was just unique to see it through those two lenses yeah absolutely and the the theme i I think of a big theme of this film is is aging and age and and both youth and Mm -hmm. old and 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 getting old um, you know, several times, uh, Earl and his his crew are kind of called old folks uh, by by the people around them because they're they've been there so long that you know they're they're into middle age now, and I think you, what what you see is you know people passing time in different ways in in over this long haul of this this um, this prison system whether it's again drugs, violence. Uh, uh, or or any any kind of project, you know. The, there are different mm-hmm. projects that people need to pass time, and I I think Earl's project is kind of the unexperienced uh, fatherhood that that he has a, an opportunity here uh, with Ron. That's you a good know? way to look at it. Wow, I didn't look at it that way. That is that is what it was. Basically, he has to very overtly tell Ron several times that he's not being nice to him just to you know, get him off his guard so he can rape him. He's ba- yeah. he has to he has to basically tell him he's like I'm doing this, you know, like this this is, you know, I gotta show show you the ropes and yeah, you know. Because I think you're right. I think he sees something of himself in that, but something also Yeah. A large part of the latter half half of the film is is this plan for an escape. But the idea that they yeah. plan this to, to escape together I think it's the idea of there's there's a scene there's a scene early on uh, earlier on before the, the the escape plan is put in in where he's where they're having a conversation a back and a back and forth as they're having dinner at, in the kitchen there and and Ron has to almost apologize to Earl that he's his plans for whenever he gets out isn't to be a career thief. It's like I'm sorry I'm not you know like more of a like my my mentality is, and you know my future plans aren't around crime essentially. And mm-hmm. Earl says that's okay. 
that's that's fine because yep. that's it's almost refreshing to him that there's there's someone yeah. who has a better chance at a life than than he did and it's it's crafted in a the the dialogue and the and the, the dynamic between them is crafted at at that aspect that he wants more he wants for this kid or he, that he can live vicariously through what this kid could Definitely. be uh because he sees himself in in that as as well and and also the cast that's the casting comes into play there as you said too mm-hmm. um having someone like willem defoe again slight wiry um strong you know like like imposing with attitude but he is is not again a physically overwhelming guy but he's he you could see a guy like like ron growing growing to be the same stature as a guy like earl um, if, yes. Oh, if absolutely. he if he they, survived they, and 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 made a life inside, definitely. I mean, he he was basically probably looking at a younger version of himself and saying that you know I want to make it easier for him. But yeah, I'm glad you spoke to that right away because I think in, someone watching this movie, um, one of the questions would be and, and that would keep popping up in your mind is what is his motivation for looking out for him. And, and you you touching on the idea of it just being, not just being, but the importance of it being like a big project to him and just the idea of, of him having the ability to make someone's life better. What bigger project or more important project is it? So I think the motives and understanding those motives, and, and I'm so glad you just jumped on it right away, was so important. Because I was even, initially when I first saw it, and I hadn't seen this in forever, this came out in 2000, I was revisiting the idea of why is he doing this, yeah. you know, because everyone's always looking. I want to make a note real quick. I know we always uh, we have a bunch of music lovers who um, uh, tune in to hear. Um, and uh, the, the person who did the score is John Lurie, and he's an amazing um, creator, musician, director, painter. You can actually see him right now in a, uh, an HBO show called Painting with John, which is fascinating. I think he did a Fishing with John. Um, he's just he's just a genius. He was he founded the Lounge Lizards in New York. Um, an album I go to continuously is the um, legendary Marvin Pontiac. Uh, it was really cool to see that he did the score. And there was also another musical moment that I just, I did not uh, remember or see coming when I was revisiting it. But um, uh, Anthony uh, Hegarty, who is known from Anthony and the Johnsons, um, he's now named, uh, now he's now known as um, Anani. Um, he was singing in jail and it's a real, his style is real unique. He's singing a song called Rapture. And I was just, I, I was kind of floored to see that it's something you wouldn't expect in like a prison scene or anything like that. But those are two cool musical notes. And, and, you know, John did such an amazing job with the uh, soundscapes and uh, music for this, for this film. It was, it was a big part of it for yeah, me. The first time I saw Lurie was in the film uh, Down by Law, which is Jim Jarmusch yep. film. And it's about a prison escape, yep. <laughs> ironically. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, fittingly, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very, it's a very kind of, I guess spare is, is one way to, to, to say it, but it, it, it fits, yeah. it fits the, the kind of brick and mortar um, and kind of lead paint <laughs> uh, setting that, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, grass and blood of, of uh, this, this kind of um, factory designed prison scape. I love it. The kind of star shape. Uh, that that they kind of emphasize yeah. on the exterior. You have oh, these yeah. long, yep. 
you see the exteriors of these long hallways um, that all these prisoners are funneled into as blocks, and then in between the, the, the or I guess not star as much as it is bicycle wheel, and between all the spokes yeah. are the yards, are these um, spokes. Uh, I guess V-shaped yards, and one of the great first shots of the yard is you see an overhead shot of the prisoners coming out to the yard for the day, and they diverge. You have this one, this double line of yeah. prisoners that diverge. One goes one way, one goes another, as they mm-hmm. enter the yard, and mm-hmm. That kind of hints at the um, segregation, self-segregation going on uh, by race, um, by uh, sexuality, by power, the power structures that go on there. Um, A big part of this thing, a big part of this film, or an underpinning of it, is sexuality, male sexuality. Yes. And uh, I think Anthony Heck, Anthony uh, Hegarty's um, performance is is interesting because that's the big show. People want tickets for the show. Who's the who's performing mm-hmm. tonight? And again, it's it's a very interesting kind of three piece. He's got a there's an accordion and a violin accompanying, mm-hmm. and it's not what you would expect as a uh, at all. Yeah, as as the accompaniment there. Uh, one of there's I've, I've, there's another guy. I think it's. Oh God, what's his name? I think it's Jake Labatz. Is a guy who's a uh, a real life blues musician um, who plays a couple of scenes with his guitar in this as well. He does. Yeah. He does. I, I I didn't know his name. I'm I'm God is I I I was actually doing a little research and I wasn't coming upon yeah. it. Um, those are great too, and, and that's I think that's why I jumped on speaking to music right away because there was something. You know, I guess Steve was so open to the idea. They they spent. I love when they spent some time with it. It wasn't just like in the background. I mean, we got to see uh, Anani singing for a moment. We got to see what what did you say his name might be? Uh, let me see. I think I think it's Jake Labatz. I think I think that's yeah. Him. We got to see Jake actually like singing part of his song, and it was like it was brought to the forefront and actually something that was celebrated. Yeah, which was so so cool and like. You're right, it, it, and you said sexuality was such a theme, and just like dominance is, and I think dominance is a theme that, you know, is gonna really permeate in in a lot of prison films, and just like how you um, act on that dominance, dominance, and use that dominance, and and it's just it's it's wild to see it play out, and it's scary as hell. It's yeah. really, it's 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 these films, and like that's why it it it, it was like kind of that's why this movie actually has a comforting undertone if you ask me and it's because someone is looking out for like someone else and and then you see others looking out for others in in a way and, and meaning that like you know i just I, I i get it's disturbing thinking about life in there but it's also when you see these moments of of realizing that people are looking out for each other no matter what the hardships are those, those are some those are some you know, thoughts to rest your head on when you're thinking about some some of this. Oh, hell. absolutely, because it is. Yeah. yeah, and especially if you're a teenager, or I guess he's 21. I, I believe in this, but I mean, it's yeah. for long such so baby faced that it's but, tough to. He looked so baby faced, but I mean, but it's also that was a, a a thing like he was a child of privilege too, who who would get uh, ripped ripped alive in there as uh, you would assume. One thing that was really funny to me, or it, like fascinating, was this. This kind of was um, the way he was thrown in jail, or put in jail, uh, was 
kind of the opposite of privilege in this way. The judge decided that if I go easy on you, it, w- it, would, it would be a kick in the face to anyone who has that same charge is in jail now. So they were trying to make an example out of him. So I thought, I, I thought that was a very kind of unique kind of turn on, on what we see all too often where certain people who are privileged get off and, you know, others don't. Yeah, abs- absolutely. If only justice uh, really worked that way in terms of uh, <laughs> the, the haves right? and the have-nots in the world, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you mentioned about the com- comfort versus terror. Um, I think those are embodied uh, as regards to sexuality by two two great kind of casting uh, choices, surprising casting choices in this film. Uh, we have to talk about the cast. Yeah, I, I hate I hate when I'm just like listing the cast, but this cast is incredible. So yeah, absolutely. So Ron's first cellmate that we see, at least bunkmate, is Jan, the actress, um, who is Mickey Rourke. Um, basically as as a transsexual but mm-hmm. you get the impression that is done has has kind of the way that he dresses with, with you know is very feminine and nails has has nails and the that he's always doing and the um, the cinched up um, shirt uh, you know kind of halter top style shirt and makeup that you know it's it's almost like um expresses his 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 her sexuality in a in a way where it's not again not explain overly explained it doesn't have to say whether it's no, whether not it's not all. you know for survival or if this is just the optimal mm-hmm. of of you know given the opportunity to you know whatever but is again kind of an interesting uh i think it, jan jan was being who jan was yeah. which is which is amazing and, and and that uh one of the best things about it was kind of it, coming back to jan it felt like these like unique breathers his like it was i wouldn't say comic relief because it was almost introspective and him kind of defining things that were happening around and one of the best moments of the film if you ask me was his paris speech him going on about you know yearning to go to paris and what happens there and he was he was he was kind of a nice diversion from the 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 main course of events but also you know encapsulated the whole experience uh, on a whole yeah and and the idea that same age as same age group as earl you know this is you know jan's yeah. getting older yeah. jan's in middle age mm-hmm. like this is yep. those dreams are dying and it's how what do you hold on to uh when you're inside like the idea of the one day that you can do that and be waited on and ta- and escorted around one of the world's great cities yep. when you're you know in in basically basically prison for forever you know it's it's yeah. how do you hold on to that that humanity yeah. and those those hopes and stuff so it, and it's also giving insight to one of the few people that's been around long enough to give um ron insight into earl as a younger person the idea that he spends True. for the you know, telling him that earl spent his first two years they're not smiling at all you know in, in basically the same yep. survival mode that ron was and have hearing that from someone yeah. that's you know trustworthy we needed some backstory uh on to who earl was it just it was you know like i was saying in in the last film we didn't get much max backstory like it, it just seeing who he was and it, it, it i guess i inferred that like we were almost looking at you know um ron was him but it was it was and i guess it was because i mean both of them 
imagine if Ron didn't have anyone to look out for him. It was probably that person who just didn't, you know, smile, didn't have anything going for him. But um, you're right. Jan, Jan laid the groundwork for for letting us know who Earl was before. And 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 he wasn't, I mean, it, Mickey wasn't the only one. I mean, Seymour Cassell was in there. Um, I, I love uh, Mark Mark Boone um, Jr. He's, he's I, I love, I've, I've loved his career, watching him the whole time. He recently in the Patriot, Danny Trejo, uh, a, Tom Arnold had a huge role. What, yeah. It's just well, that's, all these characters I think, I, played. Go on. I think Christian. Arnold is, is an interesting case. I, I'd be really yeah. interested to know more about the casting process for, for his character, <laughs> Buck Rowan, uh, because yep. it's interesting. Even the way they shoot his reveal is interesting. Mm-hmm. So Ron, Ron's, Ron's in kind of uh, a classroom setting, and a guy that when he first came into prison, another young guy with him who has now become the, the punk for another, another guy's uh, another kind of dominant uh, prisoner on the inside is, you know, he glances over at this guy who's, you know, kind of wearing makeup and is, you know, also in class, but is obviously belongs to someone else. And this is something that Ron has has declared to himself that he will never accept. He will never, you know, uh, become that. And as but this was a guy they briefly made, a, you know, a human connection with when they on their first you know day in. And so he glances at him and briefly tries to smile at him. And, and the guy pulls back. Uh, or leans back in his chair just as he smiles, and behind him in the next, the next desk, staring a, a hole through um, uh, Ron is uh, Buck Rowan, it's Tom Arnold, and you see him and just with this kind of lascivious, you know, stare, uh, like obviously is is uh, looking right back at at Ron who averts his gaze, but shortly thereafter. Um, confronts and kind of ambushes uh ron in the in the bathroom next to the classroom before another class and and basically uh sexually assaults him um and is on his way to doing more before he's interrupted by the um the teacher and uh it becomes very apparent that uh, ron's got a a decision to make on how he's going to handle this and his decision is that he's going to try to kill the guy much to the chagrin of earl who doesn't who knows what what the repercussions are of this guy one tries it and two isn't successful or handles it sloppily um you know this so he tries to intercede on his behalf all these things kind of uh, converge and uh ron essentially saves earl's life from um from rowan by uh, stabbing him and uh it's pretty it's pretty violent but just going back to arnold as as that guy i mean Tom Arnold's a fascinating guy to me in terms of his his career. Uh, <laughs> no some doubt. some of the stuff that he some of the films that he has appeared in or gotten it's like you know uh, True Lies was uh, probably his um, was another one where I was like wow that Roseanne guy he's 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 like in a blockbuster yeah. he, like with Schwarzenegger he, he did a great job he's great bro. in that yeah he crushed that one and, and then he'll great. he'll kind yeah. of come and go he was great in this he was great in oh this. yeah. Like he was, he was, he was absolutely skeevy, and 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 it was, it wasn't, it wasn't playful. No. Like you know, you look at Tom Arnold, and you can kind of scoff at him and laugh. This was not playful. He was, he was intimidating. He was disturbing. He was able to do what and he yeah, did. And, you know, yeah, you know, 
and we're told of his his background that you know, he's, this guy is a serial rapist and he threatens yep. to Looks to like Earl's yeah. face and Tons to Ron's face to rape both of them yep. and yep I, yeah he pulls it off I think it's an interesting again an interesting casting choice because again it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't even be as creepy if you get a guy who's more physically built or is you know more yeah. muscular or something like that so again again it goes back to sometimes the banality of things uh is is more creepy the idea that's the yep. you know the the person that you don't necessarily expect and that again that Assume. that in, that's that's Go more down. to real life you know serial killers yeah their banality is is their kind of cloak that that's uh yep. that lets them get away for as long as uh, as they get away Definitely. with things um, they can move in and out, move in and out of our worlds and our lives just by being a regular Joe. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the other thing too is the idea that that in you know this when you're in stir in one of these you know in in, in prisons like this, the especially if you're in, in a state or if if you've the difference, especially if you've committed a felony. Not all felonies are created the same, but doesn't mean you're not going to be serving time with people who are. And that's the yep. terrifying uh, part of, or a scary part of prison for 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 people uh, is is just that is 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 the worst of the worst in there with with those who are maybe in there on on nonviolent felonies. So that mm-hmm. that becomes you know it's again that's its own kind of commentary as well. You know one of the things. W- I went to to college in at the University of Pittsburgh, and I w- worked uh, mm. at uh, the school paper. I didn't know you were a parent. I was, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I worked at the the Pitt News, which is the the paper there. And my last story mm-hmm. I filed uh, my senior year was um, about uh, a group of convicts at at a state prison that was uh, just down the Ohio River from the city. Um, and uh, my uncle, who's a lawyer at the time, was part of something called the Pre- Pennsylvania Prison Society. And mm-hmm. so I went with him. We got permission, and we went into across the yard with one guard, me and him, and prisoners in jumpsuits all around. And we went up, went up a couple of, of floors to uh, what looked like a rec room with a bunch of chairs in, in the center. We, we I sat in on a meeting of the Lifers Association. At uh, this particular mm-hmm. prison that was facilitated or uh, sponsored by the Pennsylvania Princess Society, and they have speakers, I think, come in or a speaker for the group like once a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I went there and I sat in on their meeting, and it was interesting. These guys were all serving life without possibility of parole. Um, this was at a time in the early aughts where classes like. Uh, prison education classes or, or um, jobs had been trimmed back significantly. So it wasn't a lot of time, a lot of things to pass your time with or to dedicate yourself to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they would hold these meetings that were conducted with Robert Rules of Order. So it was really interesting to hear them passing the gavel and making points of order <laughs> on, uh, in an interest. It was, it was it just talking wow. About, wow. about life at, at, in the prison of what had happened in the past, whatever, since the last meeting and stuff. And uh, so I wrote a story about it. It was the last story that just kind of this existence that's playing out for these guys over the course of years, decades, lifetimes, a stone's throw 
from a major re- regional city. I mean, it was literally like five or ten minute drive down down the river from from the north side of Pittsburgh. Oh. And that it, it's go world. yeah, it's a whole another world of that's unseen and unknown. And I think film like Animal Factory is is interesting as insight into that into that existence. And I another reason I like it is right around this time, HBO had a series called Oz, which uh, started in the the mid to late nineties. And I, th- I think I forget how much long of a run it had. It might have had like a five six year run. Yeah, it had a long run. Oz has a bunch of seasons. Immediately yeah. after it ended, it felt like half the cast went to uh, uh, Law and Order SVU because <laughs> yep. I because oh, yeah. Christopher oh, Maloney yeah. uh, infamously was one of the <laughs> was one of the characters uh, in in Oz that Love transferred be- that became a cop. Yep. On SVU, yep. um, the prop. Watch it. It's interesting the the fact that this kind of comes out in the middle of that run. I th- I feel like Oz was kind of the highest profile, yeah, film TV thing at that time in people's insight to what a prison, prison. life, quote unquote, yeah. prison life was like. Which is another thing to speak to the the skeeviness. I I, I had a hard time with that. It's just so hard for me to like get my head around like just. You know, just the moments in between. We're seeing all the action in prison. But, like, just, like, when they sit down, and you sit down, and you have all day, you know? And it just the whole thing, the the idea of what's in your mind and, and just everything. It's just, it's, it's, it's a physical, mental, and emotional battle that I just really, really have a hard time really getting my head around. But to kind of, like, speak to what Edward Bunker means to me... It, looking at these two films as, as a screenwriter, I know he was a book writer that these were adapted, but you know what his, his, you know, work in film is meant to me. I mean, it really wades you right in kind of into the underbelly in a way that's more realistic than I, you know, and I can't speak to it personally, but like I, I, I just buy into him just because of his experience and, and, him taking us into that city, you know, world below that many of us don't know well, um, you know, you just see how how hard they have it and how up against all odds they have to fight just to get by. And even that get by isn't pretty. And and something I, you know, am really drawn to is he has a deep empathy for these people who are trying to get out and restart their lives or has an empathy for even these criminals as people because they are people. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, I, I, I think it's just some of the most uh, kind of compelling um, and intimate portraits of how those live, like kind of on the other side of the law um, actually live. And I just think he did it better as, as a writer than, than almost anyone I'm, I'm familiar with in, in, in this realm of storytelling. I agree. And I'm, I'm glad that it was a literary take first. And it, in addition yep. to the film, I think it, the idea that people can yeah. watch this, get an idea of it, then visit uh, bunkers, literary works is, is a great thing. Um, and the fact that, you know, nobody's so fierce came out while he was still in prisons. Um, I know. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. That's wild to think about that, that it was, it was happening in, in real time for him there. I, I mean, I love, I'd like to learn more. I, I, those, I'm glad you mentioned those books earlier. I'm sure listeners are as well. Cause just the idea of Dustin visiting them and, and him in there and them bringing this to life. 
um, all in real time while he, before he's even kind of out of the system. Because, I mean, he was fully out of the system in, uh, I think, 75, and this came out in 78. But still, there was a lot of production before that. So, really, two great films. Straight Time, to me, is a classic. I, I, Animal Factory is great as well, but uh, Straight Time is such a classic to me. Um, Christian, uh, I know you want to say something about a screenwriter that um that that you really appreciated that past recently so i'd love to do that to kind of close this out here do you uh do you want to take the mic yeah thanks michael so here we are in the the end of the closing weeks of uh, week of january 2021 and uh we just uh are past the passing of uh, screenwriter walter bernstein um walter passed at 101 um and was very long lived and lived a hell of an interesting life. Um, lived long enough that uh, during World War II, he was a correspondent for um, kind of a life magazine style army magazine called Yank um, that was kind of next to Stars and Stripes as, as a journalistic um, magazine. Uh, kind of, it seems to be photo based. Uh, on a lot of stuff and mm. had amazing articles, including uh, exclusives on. Um, about you know the when concentration the concentration camps were were um, liberated uh, firsthand accounts of those um, which are really kind of amazing first drafts of history to go back and read but um, Bernstein for uh, a, a big formative th- t- um, event for him during that time was reporting uh, in the Italian theater and then in the Yugoslavian theater he had a chance um, and took it upon himself after getting a tip to. Uh, go into what would become Yugoslavia and give the get the first interview from Tito, the uh, Joseph Tito, I think his name is, or it's, is it Joseph? I forget. Tito, the uh, who would become later the, the um, president of Yugoslavia, who was at that time the partisan leader fighting the Nazis. Um, and um, an amazing story at that time, but also just kind of risking his own life to, to go and take it upon himself to do some correspondent writing at that time. And he was, um, you know, in his twenties at the time doing this early, early twenties and got a real kind of insight into world war two and then came home and saw kind of experience of the relationship of uh, the U S with communism afterwards. Um, eventually got, got work as a screenwriter and, and, uh, was caught up in um, what would become known as the Hollywood blacklist uh, during the the 1950s. Obviously, you had uh, Joseph McCarthy and the House on American Activities Committee. Um, Walter was, you know, part of a a larger group of of writers that were blacklisted from from working because of their associations. And as he noted when I talked to him, eventually interviewed him, um, he was he was open about his uh, the, his support and his his sympathy for um, communist causes, but you know it it compared to what it was it was uh, <laughs> uh, portrayed as yeah. um, his name was made it in something called the Red Channels booklet, um, which was mm-hmm. quite infamous in terms of listing these people. So if you showed up to try to get work, it was an easy to read guide of, of people you were not supposed to hire, I guess. Um, mm. A lot of this was also the more high profile, the Hollywood, Hollywood 10 or Hollywood 12 um, is brought to, is explored oh. in Trumbo from a couple years Trumbo. ago um, yep. Dal- about yep. Dalton Trumbo, the, the screenwriter. Film, and yeah. um, But Bernstein uh, was actually, thanks to Sidney Lumet, 
um, eventually uh, helped off off of the of that that kind of un, unofficial blacklist and got back into work uh, as at the close of the fifties, and then got to work really with some really great um, writing on films. The first the first big one is a film called Failsafe, um, which is. Mm. Uh, which he adapted from a book, which is about in a real-time kind of um, nuclear war crisis between the uh, USSR and the USA. And this would, ironically, the same year that uh, Animal Factory came out in 2000, there would be a live television uh, revival of uh, Failsafe, where it was performed live um thanks to, I think, the driving force but, but was uh, George Clooney. And uh, so oh. it's the the majority of the drama takes place between the pre- the president of the U.S. and uh, his, his translator oh. um, talking back yes. and forth on the phone. The translator is essentially the Russian premier um, as they... Mm. Uh, as they try to negotiate what happens when a rogue nuke goes down, will they sacrifice an American city or will it lead to um, oblivion for the planet, essentially? And so it's a real yeah. interesting insight to Cold War uh, drama, but also into um, morality uh, on a large scale. And uh, this is a couple of years before Dr. Strangelove, and, but it was exploring topics very much in that on that uh, what if kind of scenario. Um, he also Bernstein went on to work with um, s- writing several other other films, but uh, the most important one I think people should know was uh, a film that he uh, got nominated for a screenwriting uh, Academy Award for in the seventies called The Front, um, starring Woody Allen basically as a guy who's the face man for a bunch of blacklisted screenwriters who can no longer work but have content and they need somebody to essentially pretend to be the real writer so they can continue to make a living and um finally uh within the movie uh alan as uh, howard prince is the, the guy's name is kind of called on his yep. his uh, called before the law for this uh, when he's found out, and is told to essentially testify against these these guys. And there's if you see supercuts of Alan uh, here and there of, over you know his greatest moments from films, there's one where he says, uh, and by the way, just want to say on behalf of everybody, fuck you <laughs> to these uh, <to> people. <laughs> well, now that, that one shows up in some supercuts. Um, it was the rare film that it, <laughs> where he was an actor but not a writer during the 70s. Um, and it was um, recruited to, uh, to, to be in this film, and he's very good in it. It's actually kind of an, um, an interesting period of, of, of uh, Alan at the height of his acting talent um, during the mm-hmm. 70s without uh, having to be one of his own with his own film, seeing how someone else would use him. Yeah. Um, in a role so uh consequent consequently Bernstein was nominated for for uh but did not win that that Oscar um by the time that I talked to him years later and he's been in he's done a lot of other stuff uh too um but by the time uh, I interviewed him um in 2013 he was 93 and teaching uh screenwriting at NYU and had been for a while 
I think he had taught at screenwriting at Columbia before that. And the day after I interviewed him for a television uh, report, the New York Post published a um, kind of a pre-Oscar ceremony um, article about uh, purported kind of out-of-touch uh, Oscar voters and was kind of aimed at older older voters. Um, who um, And the picture they chose to run was Walter Bernstein, ironically. And so I remember I, re I followed this report and uh, I saw... Uh, I was reading the reading the post, and there was Walter the day after I interviewed him, and um, you know even the the author of the post I made a note of it here said that at uh, then at ninety three, uh, he is one of the oldest and most active members of the New York voting block. Bernstein still teaches at NYU and writes, still sees all the movies each year, and thinks Life of Pi was quote marvelously done. <laughs> so. <laughs> Even oh, it, it was actually pretty easy on Walter beyond that. Um, even the, it was it was kind of a terrible piece because it it, it was taking aim at, at uh, quote unquote out of touch voters, um, which is again you know we're just past the the Major League Baseball uh, this year uh, didn't vote in any uh, players, um, and one of the, every time this happens where there's only a couple people voted in regardless of what morality that they're citing. People say, well, the, the voting, the voters, these writers of baseball, they're out of touch. They're too old. And subsequently, anyway, and with with the Oscars, that's the, you know, the idea of the voting that, block. That, is. That, that's, in, that's in play, too. They're, 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 the, the idea of who the vote, voting block is, is definitely being analyzed. But I think some of that is good. But also, uh, when you're hearing something like this with Walter, who's like so in touch and so, you know, still following it and loving the life of pilots. You know what I heard there in a major way was um, that a screenwriter lived a life. Oh, yeah. And then wrote and then wrote about it. And, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I think it's amazing when any of us who are writing write about something just, um, you know, just 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 come up with the ideas. But I mean, uh, you know what you were saying about Walter and then what we were speaking about here about um you know edward is just like they lived this life they are the authority on this thing and they wrote about it and i mean just to kind of bring it home edward i mean i can't think of anyone and i was kind of saying this earlier but i can't think of anyone whose work i would almost trust more on this topic that that his films were based on and it was just so beautiful and that's kind of you know what you're speaking to a little bit yeah with walter as well beyond other yeah things. i i think that's a good way to end. It's the idea that in both their cases, I think Edward Bunker lived it, but so many of those people that he interacted with, served time with, did crime with or not, or just knew, just had to drink with, uh, that made it yeah. out. They, they are unknown. Their experiences are unchronicled. And I think that is yeah. his legacy as chronicler. With Walter... Even, Definitely, he had the ability to the skills, the the, the yeah. knowledge. Gone with Walter. Well, you Walter, in the, in the same way, I think he set his course early on by writing for Yank in the, in in the forties. He had a, and then in through failsafe, even and, and other and and cer certainly, um, cer you know, certainly the front, the idea of channeling the experiences that he had lived through and seen. I mean, he have, up until when the, when I interviewed him. He was still working on scripts about um, the things that 
that of people that he had seen that that he wanted he thought would be valuable to chronicle so i mean the last two that he, wow. he was 93 yeah. he was 93 yeah. when you'd met him and that's had, crazy so i'll give you an example so like the 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 two the two scripts that he i said walter what are you working on as you go through well well he, one of them was this about a woman named helen gagan i think her name is helen gagan douglas who um was basically uh you know richard nixon ran basically in when he was running for Senate, ran against this woman in 1950, and it was a it was very much about red baiting the idea of of using the angle of anti communism against this woman, and that was something that even as a young man he had seen and and thought, well, it could very easily be forgotten years later. I'm going to write a sc- screenplay in my 90s about this, and the other one was about a very divisive but important lawyer named William Kunstler and the idea that the Chicago 7, most famously, but the idea of these these characters, uh, their stories being adapted from people that saw them, uh, that, that lived with them, that, that had some angle that they could add to it. And I look at Edward Bunker and I say, you know, I see the idea that he continued to be hired on as a consultant for authenticity, for the idea of we don't just want to make a prison movie. We want to have that, like you said, that humanity to these these people, good or bad. You know, the idea that like a movie is always going to be a movie where you need villains, you need the, the hero or whatever. But the idea that giving the, the real uh, the real angle of, of life lived and the way people talk, the way people act, the way people joke, the way people curse, um, all that stuff comes through in at least these two film versions and they're people that are would otherwise be unseen. Like I said, these 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 prisons uh, existing beside us, but unseen. These ex-convicts who kind of walk among us, unseen, trying to interact with a world that's past them. And I think that's that's Bunker's legacy, right there, is the idea of 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 being the chronicler and of that. That's an important thing, and it's you know, unfortunately he's passed. But his his work, his books, his screenplays, his the films that he's worked on, they're still around and they're well worth worth watching. Damn straight. Thank you, Edward, for your work. Thank you, Christian, for your time. Thanks for your insight, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy to do it, Michael. And uh, thank you, everyone out there, for once again joining the party. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcasts. 
Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.